I'm Rick O'Shea and welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. Joining me is Breda Brown. Breda, what are you reading at the moment? I'm actually rereading Nora by Nuala O'Connor about the lives of Nora Barnacle and her husband James Joyce because I'm loving the rich and evocative descriptions of the era that they lived in. Yeah, and I'm halfway through something I bought almost a year ago, Fernanda Melkor's uh, Hurricane Season, uh, all about life in Mexico and about a witch found dead in a canal. I get the feeling that your book is going to be far more relevant to what we're talking about later on than mine. But first. A year ago, it was her book deal that made the headlines. As of this week, it will be the book itself getting the attention and rightly so. Louise Nealon, welcome to The Book Show. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. It's great to be here. Tell me first, before we get into this, was there any pressure given the fact that you made the headlines a year ago for this book? Oh God. Um, Well, I wasn't expecting like that level of attention really because I haven't really seen it anywhere there was no precedent for it you don't go into writing expecting like the spotlight (laughs) but in all honesty it was just great to have good news it was great to have good news to share with people especially it was the start of lockdown and everyone was pretty miserable so even just walking around the place and bumping into neighbours it was great to have something to distract everyone and I think that's something that really um, I didn't expect from the book was to give other people a lift as as well as me. I don't think there was any pressure. I didn't feel the pressure. I only ever put pressure on myself. Um, Do you know the phrase like pressures for tyres? I I try not to think about the outside, you know. You sound remarkably cool and and I say that because maybe for people who don't know, you know, the the deal was that you'd gotten a a two book deal. It was a six figure sum, element pictures and optioned screen rights already before the book had seen the light of day. For a lot of people, that would put a fair amount of pressure in their tyres. Yeah, and I had a great agent. (laughs) She's she's amazing. Um, If it was me selling the book, I would have paid for people to publish the book, to be honest. Um, I'm a terrible business person and any practical thing whatsoever, I tremble. So I felt like my job was done when it was edited and all the noise going around it is kind of in other people's hands at the minute. Like I adored working with the characters and it was really, it was really hard and I really didn't expect publication. I didn't expect a book deal, to be honest. It's so far beyond my wildest expectations that I'm quite comfortable with it because I'm I'm the person that expects the worst case scenario. Like I thought I'd still be in my sister's box room, you know, 20 years time being the mad auntie, you know, drinking the sherry. So that like I've gotten a bit of validation for what like I like to do as a job and to see it as a job is just great, really. Maybe in terms of of that noise, and just before we talk about the book itself, some of the kind of maybe media reception about this before the book had actually made its way into people's hands, it it was very easy for people to to look at it in a certain way, to put it in a bracket, because uh, you've already got uh, a young woman who comes from rural Ireland and who goes to Trinity, and you yourself are a young woman author, and Element Pictures have bought the rights. There were an awful lot of people maybe potentially putting it in a Sally Rooney-style bracket. Now, having said that, uh, from the moment I read the book, I realised that obviously this is a very, very different animal, this particular story. Oh, thanks. It's it's really nice to hear that. Yeah, in terms of comparing myself to other writers, it's mad just because you share a gender and an age bracket with someone. Like, I love Sally Rooney. 
And if it was any other sort of job, like say if we were two carpenters, you know, there wouldn't be that much interest in how we did our jobs. People wouldn't ask us to comment on each other's jobs. Not that anyone would be asking Sally about me, Jesus. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's helpful or healthy for me to compare myself to anyone. I'm now starting to wonder whether or not there's a whole competitive carpentering scene that neither you or I know about. But um, <laughs> were, you, were you moved to write the sort of book that you would have wanted to when you were younger to read? Um, maybe as a sort of resource for that younger you. Absolutely. That's the reason I wrote the book. When I was younger, just after leaving school, I started college and I was absolutely terrified like, I share a lot in common with Debbie in that I didn't go to Dublin a lot and I had to ask a guard where Trinity was the first day. And I was scared and I came home and I felt like such a failure. And I took a year out anyways. And the thing that really brought me out of myself was books and reading. Do you know when people say that really touched me? Uh, like, words can touch you. It's nice at a time like this where there's... Uh, lack of touch you know that you can go to books for and get the same sort of oxytocin that you get from physical touch as you get from reading a really good sentence and you feel like someone's reaching out to you and and showing you you know you recognize that human condition and that's what I got out of books they really brought me out of myself they brought me in touch with with the world in a less scary way you know like, I'm an absolute nightmare, like, in, in reality. If, like, if I met you on the street, I'd bumble into you and say all the wrong things. And that's the reason why I write and, and why I read, is because it's a lot safer, you know? The title of the book itself, Snowflake, was the first thing that drew my attention to it. It's a word that divides people. Tell me what prompted it. Tell me, was it sort of an act of reclamation? Yeah, I grappled with the title for ages just because it carries so much baggage with it <laughs> I think people sometimes might roll their eyes at it it felt very obvious to me and, and a bit naive and, but then I got really into snowflake photography and they're absolutely amazing they look like like glass sculptures and every single one is is different and and then I thought it, w- it was a it was kind of um it would be an interesting idea for me to tackle that pejorative term, snowflake. It's incredible how society has become so cynical that they can take something so beautiful and use it as an insult, you know? And in some ways, the book is an ultimate ode to naivety and the, the power of naivety, because Debbie, is, she does know absolutely nothing. And we live in a, in a world where it's not seem to be okay to know nothing anymore. People pretend to know things all the time. And it was an interesting idea for me to explore and, and grapple with, really. It was a bit of a challenge. So I, once I saw those um, photos of the snowflake, I, I made up my mind and I knew that it was going to be the title. The book is about a lot of things. It's about the tug sometimes between family and then the tug between a brand new life and maybe far more importantly than that, it's a, it's a better search for identity really at the heart of it, isn't it? Yeah, so the book, um, it's about a girl called Debbie who lives on a dairy farm and her mother Maeve 
uh, thinks that she's able to dream other people's dreams and that it's a genetic sort of condition and she's passed this ability on to Debbie. And then Debbie is, is great friends with her uncle Billy, who lives in a caravan at the back of uh, their house. And Billy's very charming and everyone loves him. And uh, he thinks he knows what's best for Debbie. And and he, he tries to assure her that all the dream stuff is absolute nonsense. And so so the book shifts between the farm and where Debbie feels safest. But her relationships are quite strained with both her mom and her uncle and this new life in Dublin where she doesn't feel safe at all. But there is glimmers of hope in Dublin, in, including Xanthi, a girl that she meets that could be seen as, as a possible friend, even though she seems too perfect to be real. So, yeah, it's very much um, a book about identity and not feeling like you have your place in the world yet. Maybe ju- just to finish, has literature really got the ability to save lives, as I've heard you say? Well, it definitely has saved my life. And I don't say that lightly. I was never suicidal, but I was in danger of not living you know, literature, I've, I've prioritised literature and it's given me so much. Yeah, it, it's helped me more than anything else, um, really, outside of, you know, my family and my friends. But yeah, I do, I like, I find friends in, in books and podcasts about uh, books, like, I'm best friends with you in my head. So I think just like the, the power of the imagination and and yeah, having contact with people through the page is just something that, like, I think it's just the most miraculous thing in the world. And I definitely stand by that statement. Well, then let me try and give you a tiny little something back by saying that the book is one of the best things that I've read this year. And it's been brilliant to have you on, Louise Nealon. Thanks for joining us on The Book Show. Thanks so much, Rick. Snowflake is published by Manila Press. Brida Brown is here to talk historical fiction with me, Brida. It's never out of fashion, but it's a genre that seems to be enjoying a particularly high critical profile at the moment. It is. Just look at some of the international names. Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, Sarah Winman's Still Life, Delia Owens, where the Crawdads Sing is still in the charts, and basically everything by Hilary Mantel. So in Ireland, though, we've also got a really decent degree of talent writing in this genre, too. We've got names like Colin Tobin, Emma Donoghue, Sebastian Barry, Leah Mills and Joseph O'Connor. So authors will tell you that there are probably a few ways of approaching historical fiction. Firstly, that they can develop a work of total fiction that's set in a particular era or they'll find a real-life character or story that they're really engaged with from the past and they'll dramatise it. And what you end up with then is a blend of fact and fiction. Okay, we're going to look at that blending and then maybe a reimagining of a real character's life, specifically Nora Barnacle. So Nora is by Nuala O'Connor and it's about Nora Barnacle who's the wife of, of James Joyce. Now, we all know a little bit about Joyce but a lot of us won't know an awful a lot about Nora but that's what makes the story so engaging so we're seeing and getting a story that we've heard loads about before the life of James Joyce but from a totally different perspective so she's reimagining that story she's using facts and timelines to guide her and then she dramatises it and that's what makes it really interesting reading they are such different characters different backgrounds different tastes different interests but what comes across is the connection between them and that love story between them which is so powerful but also the real sense of the era the clothes the street names the language 
language used. It's just a brilliant read. We should point out as well that that's not the first time Neil has done this. No, she's done quite a bit of historical fiction, including one of her previous books, Miss Emily, where again, she reimagines the private life of the poet Emily Dickinson through Dickinson's own voice, but also then through the eyes of an Irish maid that she had, and this time obviously set in the US. Neil Jordan was uh, already on the programme a little earlier in the series. He's done something very similar with the ballad of Lord Edward and Citizen Small, hasn't he? And this is set in the late 1700s. So we're going back even further and he's telling that story of Lord Edward Fitzgerald through the eyes of, of Tony Small, who's his loyal servant and an escaped slave. And Jordan studied Irish history and he said, while a lot is known about Fitzgerald, not an awful lot is known about Small and that's why he wanted to tell the story and through those eyes. So now Neil Jordan also has form. He wrote Michael Collins, the movie, but he's also set books in the 1950s and 60s. But this particular book, this new one, is actually the furthest that he's gone back in time. Um, and both Nora and Neil Jordan's one, they actually span decades, don't mind time, but they also span continents. So fair play to them. From having talked to a, a fair few writers of historical fiction over the years, obviously you've got to do your homework, you have to do your research. But if you're not careful that can kind of become a bit of a trap as well, can't it? It can. I mean, one of the most challenging things is doing your research. And you have to research. If you're setting it in a particular era, you have to get that right. Um, But again, some authors have said they have to be really strict with their time frame in terms of how much time they spend on research because you can go down so many rabbit holes and literally spend months and months and months researching. They also say they don't necessarily always use that research. It gives them a really good context, but they don't necessarily get all of that research into the actual book itself. So, I mean, when you're talking about historical timelines, dates, street names, I mean, even did that street exist in the 1800s? Did that word exist in 1930? So you need to make sure that you get those things right. Tell us a little bit maybe as well about Nicola Cassidy. She wrote a book about somebody I'm particularly interested in, Fred Astaire's sister Adele. She did. And she actually was inspired to write this book as a result of watching a documentary. And again, this is an example of of somebody who just got obsessed with the story and wanted to write about it and happened to be set in a particular era. And she went to the US to look at the Astaire archive and that includes family photographs and scrapbooks and diaries. And she said actually reading Adele's diaries, the personal diaries, that was so powerful because it had a wealth of personal information about her views and her feelings. And that's what made it easier, Nicola said, to get into her character's mind and to write about her. I can only presume that one of the joys of being a writer of historical Mm -hmm. fiction is that there's always at least one person and probably more who are perfectly happy to point out that moment when you get it wrong. Of course. And Conor Brady, who's the former editor of the Irish Times, he's written a number of crime novels set in Victorian Dublin featuring a detective called Joe Swallow. And he can vouch for this because Conor says uh, in the first Swallow book, a body is basically found in the Phoenix Park and the detective has to go through the chapel as a gate at seven o'clock in the morning to investigate. But a man actually rang Conor Brady and said to him he had been a ranger in the park for many years and said that gate never opened before eight o'clock in the morning. So again, make sure to get everything correct if you can. Maybe just to finish from from the standpoint of us as readers, uh, I know why I enjoy historical fiction at certain times. Sarah Winman's Still Life this year was a brilliant escape from 2021 for me. Why do we still love historical fiction so much? I think we just want to be transported to another era and away from our day-to-day life and another time that's totally different and particularly now given the past year that we've had. I think that's as good a reason as any to read historical fiction. Brida Brown, thanks a million for joining us as usual. Thanks, Rick. Brida's podcast Inside Books is available wherever you find yours. And now it is time once again for an author to meet their readers. Here's Anne Aiken. She's going to tell us about this week's book club. Hello. Our book club is called The Vine Club and it is based in Dublin. 
It was founded 30 years ago this year, when six much younger women than we are now gathered around Annette's kitchen table. We meet monthly in our homes and discuss the merits of the different books read by each of us. We contribute a sum of money to whoever is hosting that month, and then it is their privilege to go out and purchase books of their choice to be added to our book club library. You can imagine that one of the highlights at each book club meeting is anticipating what books are being introduced that night. In order to keep track of all the books that have graced our shelves, we have one very valuable handwritten notebook in which is recorded every book we have read since 1991. On occasion we select and read the same book, allowing us, for that month at least, to be on the same page. This month we are delighted to read Anne Griffin's second novel, Listening Still. Well, a handwritten ledger since 1991 sounds like exactly my sort of thing. Here's Linda Galligan setting the scene for us. Listening Still begins with 32-year-old Jeannie sitting with her husband and parents in their home, which also accommodates their successful family undertaking business. Her parents are excitedly announcing their plans to retire and move away and are delighted to hand over both home and business to Jeannie and her husband Niall. However, to everybody's surprise, Jeannie is stunned. Over the years, their small town undertaking business has flourished, mainly due to Jeannie and her father, who both have a special gift. That is, they are able to hear the recently dead speaking and they give voice to their final wishes and revelations. Against a backdrop of unwavering loyalty and sense of duty, Jeannie is now confronted with emotional choices and we go on a journey with her covering love, loss, truth and a family secret which keeps us turning the pages right up until that final chapter. Anne Griffin, welcome back to the book show. So lovely to be with you again, Rick. Really great. Thanks for having me again. Not a bit. Uh, We were kind of forced into it in the best possible way because (laughs) the Vine Book Club went and sourced their copies from a company of books in Ranelagh in Dublin the moment it came out. So if nothing else, I think we've been good for sales this month. Oh, well, thank you so much. Me and my bank balance, um, thank you. Uh, and you and the Vine Club, it's wonderful. <laughs> Let's do question number one. It's from the Vine Book Great. Club and this is from Roisin Hanna. In your first book, When All Is Said, which we loved, the inspiration for the main character, Morris Hannigan, came from a chance encounter in a hotel bar with an elderly gentleman in the west of Ireland. What or who was the inspiration for the main character, Jeannie Masterson, in Listening Still? Mm, That is an absolutely great question, Roisin. And it was a very different experience this time around, I have to say. This book was more a gradual dawning and pulling together of a few different things, um, a few different themes that I wanted to discuss that built the jigsaw that is Jeannie Masterson. But there were a few starting points. Even though I knew I wanted to be female, I wasn't sure of her age. And that took a bit of honing and I wavered between if I wanted her to be younger or older. By the end of it, I knew she had to be within her in her 30s. One of the other certainties was I want, knew I wanted her to be at a crossroads in her life um, and that she was going to be forced to look at who she had become. Did she like the person she had become? And I wanted it to be about a relationship in trouble as well. 
And the other thing that I knew I wanted was for it to be set in a funeral home because I've always been fascinated by the mysteries of death or more really the industries that surround death in Ireland. And I've had that ever since um, I sat for the first day in secondary school and realised that one of my uh, fellow students lived in the local graveyard and she lived in the most beautiful Gothic building I'd ever seen. In fact, I'm architecturally crap, so I don't know whether it was Gothic or not, but it was the most magnificent looking building. Her father worked in the graveyard, must have been the manager. I was astounded that someone I knew lived there because I had loved it. Um, Every weekend when we go visit my grandparents' grave, I would just wonder, what is it like behind those doors? I think that story has been living inside me. Even before um, I knew I wanted to be a writer, I think that story has been there. So I knew the setting from the off. I live in a graveyard. I can understand how that might influence somebody's life and obviously Jeannie's life in this book in in, in a kind of adjunct way. Question number two is from Mary Morrissey. I was struck by Jeannie's challenge with decision-making and later evolving bravery. Was this a conscious path you chose for Jeannie or was it something that emerged? I wanted to explore a couple of ideas in the book. Um, And the first one was that coming of age. You know, uh, when we talk about coming of age, we usually are associating that with kind of late teens, early 20s. And you see, for me, around that age, I was absolutely hopeless. I didn't know what I wanted to to do in my life. And if I could go back and talk to myself, I'd say, do you know what, that's okay. So for me, life is one long coming of age. Every couple of years, I figure I'm, I'm learning a bit more about myself. So I knew I wanted this character to have some life experience in her and for it to be that moment when it dawns on you who you are, at least dawns on you right then and there. There's plenty of other moments in life when that happens. So I wanted to bring this coming of age thing in as a universal thing for all of us growing and getting older. And secondly, then, I wanted to bring in the idea of obligation and how it can, you know, stunt us almost and and sometimes freeze us in time. And we just keep ploughing on until the weight of it one day simply gets far too much. Carolyn McArdle has the third question from the Vine Book Club in Dublin. Hi, Anne. The main theme of the book is around the concept of speaking to the dead. You use this as a vehicle to introduce the reader to a number of local characters allowing Jeannie to get involved in a Miss Marple or Olive Kittredge-like fashion to find a solution to their unresolved issues. Does the other side of life hold a fascination for you? Yeah, I am fascinated with the philosophies that surround life and death. And particularly, I am drawn to religion and what it teaches us because religion helps us make sense of our existence in the world and what it is that's going to happen afterwards. And therefore, it gives a structure, I suppose, but we have to have absolute blind faith to believe it. And so so the comfort is really important. And unfortunately for me, I found it very hard to do that, to, to have that faith. And I've all, often envied people who do have it because of, of how they can, they've made, made sense of the world. So I found that it's very alluring, although for me, I'm a bit like Jeannie when she says, do you know what, I just need the evidence. I need the evidence to know what, what's going to happen in the afterlife. But having said all of that, I've always loved magic realism, particularly in novels. 
But what I didn't want was for the for listening still to be immersed in that. I wanted it to it, the gift that Jeannie has to be more like an accepted everyday thing that we do around here. So um, I enjoyed trying to, to, to make that balance and I sincerely hope it worked. We're talking to Anne Griffin uh, about her brand new book, Listening Still. Uh, our final question from the book club comes from Annette Burke. Anne, was it a very daunting task to write your second novel after the huge success of your first book, When All Is Said? Oh, I'm laughing at this, Annette. Uh, absolutely. You see... The thing about me is I'm a great um, I'm a great underdog. I'm a real grafter. And so, you know, in getting into this writing game, um, I thought that what would happen is, you know, I'd, when I was lucky enough to get a book deal, that the book would come out and it would do OK. And then the next book would come out and it might do a little bit better. And that I'd have to put in years and years and years to get a bestseller. So when it happened straight out of the blocks, I was like, OK, I'm not sure what to do with this. I don't have a roadmap for this at all. And so I think I, I became quite crippled with anxiety around it all. And obviously around this book, this second book. The other thing was that structurally, um, this book was very different for me in that it didn't come out as swiftly and easily as when all is said. And it has changed considerably from one draft to another. For example, I didn't know the ending for a long time. <laughs> so when you've all those dilemmas and you're, and lots of things are changing within the book, plus the doubts that you have about yourself <laughs> and your abilities, it became a very, very testing time. And it wasn't really until 2020, the beginning of 2020, when I felt I got to grips with the book and that I fully understood it and that I fully fell in love with the character of Jeannie Masterson. So, yes, Annette, excellent question. It has been a very, very difficult time, but I couldn't be prouder to have the book on the shelf now and uh, for people to be reading Jeannie Masterson's story. Anne Griffin, it is always brilliant to talk to you. Thanks a million for coming on to The Book Show. Such a pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Listening Still is published by Scepter. Thanks to Anne Griffin and to the Vine Book Club in Dublin for the questions and a very happy 30th anniversary to all of the members. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, you can drop us a line, bookshow at rte.ie. That's it for the book show this week on RTE Radio 1. Uh, Don't forget the podcast is available wherever you find yours and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookshowRTE. And this Thursday the 20th at 1 o'clock I'm going to be hosting the ceremony for the Dublin Literary Award 2021 from Kevin Street Library. It's all part of the International Literature Festival Dublin and you can find more details at ilfdublin.com. I'll talk to you again next week. And as ever, don't forget to check with your local library or with your local bookshop, all of which will be reopening from tomorrow for any of the books featured on the programme.